Again, uh, first is to understand, apply the things that you've learned that the military has taught you uh, and, and apply those uh, in, in the situation that you might find yourself in. Welcome back to Leaders Recon. So this is the first of a series of episodes on domestic operations. And today we have Colonel Kettemeyer from J35. Sir, hey welcome there. to the program. Thank you, Captain Carr. Great to be here. So we're kind of diving into this whole series on domestic operations. But before we really dive into that, I kind of wanted to know a little bit about like your background and some unique experiences you've had. Um, I know we were talking a little bit before the episode here on some of your experiences uh, working in the Ukraine. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm an Illinois Guardsman, uh, AGR officer, uh, and have uh, had uh, up until this assignment at National Guard Bureau my uh, entire career with the Illinois National Guard. Um, and my last assignment there um, as the commander of the 33rd Infantry Brigade included a deployment uh, to Ukraine with the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine, which the National Guard rotates a BCT headquarters to uh, for a, a task force uh, there to support uh, UCOM in, in that effort. Um, and so that was a, a truly unique experience. Um, and, uh, and now uh, we, we returned back uh, just over a year ago in May of, of uh, 21. And so uh, certainly uh, rather, uh, rather unexpected to then see uh, this, this spring, the beginning of uh, the, uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it certainly hits close to home now after having uh, spent uh, a, a year with that effort. Where whereabouts in Ukraine were you? So the JMTGU team was deployed in western Ukraine at uh, Combat Training Center Yavrov, okay, uh, which is uh, real close to the Polish border and nearest to the town of Lviv in Ukraine. And that's the uh, that was the combat tra the combat training center was uh, the armed forces of Ukraine's. Um, uh, equivalent to our National Training Center or Joint Maneuver Training Center in Europe, uh, a large brigade-level collective training uh, center, and we were there to advise them on how to develop, uh, continue to develop that capability. So as you were kind of there working in this, but you know, we'll go down this rabbit hole just a little bit, sure. and that's like, you know, what are some of the, you know, were you, when you were working with Ukrainians on an ongoing basis, was it something that they anticipated having like a struggle with Russia coming up in the next like, I mean, basically six months after you left? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, they recognized uh, undoubtedly uh, Russia as a threat um, to them. Uh, and and uh, after their experience in 2014, when, when Russia... Um, uh, supported the uh, invasion in the Donbass in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as the annexation of Crimea. Uh, th that certainly changed the game for, mm -hmm. for Ukraine uh, in, in where it had been figuring out its, its role uh, and relationships of East versus West since, uh, since it, uh, 1993. Uh, so, uh, certainly, they they had already recognized that that Russia was was a definite threat. 
um, and that uh, they were looking to continue a, a partnering relationship with uh, with Western mm. nations uh, across all lines of government and 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 society, not just on the military side. Uh, but they certainly valued the United States involvement uh, in in military uh, advising and assisting in their developing their combat readiness and their training capabilities. So what was great, one of the great things about that uh, about that deployment is that we were working with a very willing, uh, and motivated partner that that wanted to wanted to uh, build on that relationship. Um, it wasn't just a transactional type of we know you're here, uh, so we're gonna uh, you know put up with you while you're here type of thing. Which uh, sometimes uh, in in the numerous missions that we have, occasionally you end up feeling that way at, at the soldier level. Uh, our 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 team. Uh, knew what we were doing was valued. We knew that we uh, we could see in the results of the uh, slow and steady improvement in in their um, in their capabilities, both uh, both institutionally uh, in 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 their ability to train and their understanding and development of of new Western doctrine, huh. uh, as well as. Uh, uh, the fact that they were actually conducting brigade combat uh, training exercises uh, with multinational components there, uh, and and you could see that 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 was growing and that that was uh, going to have an effect. Um, at the time, uh, the the common the common thought uh, among most of the, of, uh, the folks that we worked with there didn't really expect it as likely that. Mm. Uh, that, that Russia would take the kind of action that they did uh, this this year in 22. Um, so uh, at at that time uh, that would have that was that was rather relatively unpredicted. Even though huh. there was even though there was a continued, I uh, mean they were they were at war um, along along the, the Donbas yeah, front uh, and certainly conducting an information war uh, since 2014 with Russia. But uh, to see the escalation was, was not something that they were expecting Russia would do with the type of audacity that, uh, that was attempted uh, huh. back in uh, February and March. It's like, you know, you, you talk, talking about this really brings up like some interesting thoughts in, in my mind, just because it's like, it kind of shows like the diversity of the guards footprint, right? Like. You know, we have your experiences here working with training, you know, Ukrainian military, essentially enhancing Ukrainian readiness for combat rotation or, you know, for combat that they're engaged in right now. And then we have, you know, guardsmen at home here working in uh, COVID response. And, and, you know, I just went to a uh, NTC rotation. So you're talking about mm -hmm. the training center rotations. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just experienced that firsthand. Oh, yeah. And so... And that kind of leads us into what we're talking about today, which is like, you know, what are the domestic operations that the guard gets into mm -hmm. um, and into your role now as the as the J35? So I guess, sir, like, could you give us kind of like a little bit of an overview of, you know, you know, what are domestic operations um, and what's the scope of that for the guard? Sure, uh, it, it's actually pretty broad um, and and continues to 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 grow. I guess you could kind of say um, uh, domestic operations uh, or or just operations that the National Guard conducts uh, uh, here in in uh, the United States 
uh, in support of civil authorities essentially is is what we all at the state levels recognize as mm. our state mission uh, in the dual nature of, yeah. of the National Guard. Uh, not only do we maintain our, our preparedness as, as a, uh, a ready operational reserve of, uh, of the active components um, and, uh, ready to support our national defense strategy, uh, abroad, but we uh, and in combat, uh, we at the same time recognize the the, the nature uh, of our role as uh, each state militia uh, under the authority of of the the state or territorial governors. Uh, mean that we have a mission to support uh, the, the the needs uh, to uh, of, our, of our citizens uh, w during time of crisis. Um, and uh, that can take a, a lot of different forms. Now, uh, 25 years ago, uh, the, the thought was that that happened only occasionally uh, on a really disastrous day of, of uh, a major hurricane or a major flood, uh, uh, the kind of thing that most folks would expect to come around once in a decade. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, since, since the evolution of, of the guard and readiness, um, uh, over the last uh, 25, 30 years and the change in, in how uh, our capabilities are seen uh, by our civilian authorities, particularly after Hurricane Katrina uh, was kind of the, the, the large shift in understanding mm. that, uh, that, yeah, the National Guard can provide a lot of capabilities uh, to civilian responders and, and to the overall infrastructure of the National Incident Management System to, uh, to help, to help uh, our citizens in time of need. So, so what was, you know, what's, what's one of the big, have you been involved in some like domestic operations? And can you tell us a little bit about that kind of like personal experiences you've had? Certainly. Uh, so in Illinois, which uh, center, uh, somewhat uh, Midwest uh, uh, center of the, of, of the nation, um, uh, where, where I'm from, uh, not, not, uh, a place that we worry, uh, too often about wildfires or hurricanes. Um, but, uh, we, we get flooding, we get winter storms. Um, and we've now seen just like every other state, there's always the potential for civil unrest. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, uh, oh, by the way, Hey, a global pandemic, uh, you know, uh, is, 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 there, yeah. yeah, just gonna, just gonna, uh, uh, involve everybody, whether you like it or not. Um, and, uh, and, and while that's something that had always been on the, on the threat plans, uh, of, of potential, uh, hazard response, uh, in which we conducted exercises, uh, uh, you know, the ability to, or, or the need to actually, um, to respond to something like that, uh, was not something that was, uh, really envisioned, uh, as, as likely. And, uh, now we've seen over these last couple of years and, and hitting a high watermark, if you will, of in 2020 of, of, uh, the employment of the National Guard between, uh, both, uh, federal missions overseas and then uh, the combination of pandemic, uh, civil unrest throughout the country, uh, the uh, wildfire seasons and hurricanes. Uh, June of 2020, we hit uh, uh, our, our highest uh, level of National yeah. Guard personnel uh, employed at one time ever.
when you kind of just hit on a lot of the examples, you know, wildfires, hurricanes, the COVID response, you know, can you kind of define, you, you mentioned the dual nature of the guard, both to, su to support the, the, you know, what we would think of the traditional security mission and mm -hmm. the, the local mission. Can you kind of define like, you know, what is, you know, state active duty, right? Um, mm -hmm. And are there limits on what state active duty can be used for? So uh, state active duty, so the constitution recognizes each state's governor's sovereign right uh, as uh, to maintain a militia and, and to act as the commander in chief uh, of that militia. And, and then uh, each state or territory's constitution uh, uh, and, and law determines the specifics of that. But generally the governors have pretty broad authority um, in, in then their ability to activate the National Guard uh, in support of mm -hmm. civil authorities um, for whatever they deem is, is uh, required to uh, protect the needs of, of the citizens and, and mm -hmm. the state. Um, and so that could take a, a, a lot of shapes. Um, we've seen uh, it from the, the things you've mentioned uh, to uh, including uh, anything from search and rescue uh, operations, which happen um, uh, rather frequently in, in uh, some of our uh, uh, mountainous states, um, as well as uh, things uh, supporting uh, medical uh, facilities on a short-term basis in state active duty. We've got one state doing that right now. Um, and and uh, we also see uh, employment of uh, National Guard forces when there are larger security events uh, that'll happen and, and our civil support teams are, are a key component of that capability. Uh, but the governor really is uh, under state law. It has the authority for that state active duty. Uh, and then that is where those uh, each state develops a plan on uh, an all hazards response plan hmm. uh, of how they will uh, address um, and, and uh, conduct operations uh, at, at when that type of uh, emergency call is made. So you kind of brought up a really good point here, and this goes into your role now, I guess, sir, as the J35, which, you know, um, I want to understand a little bit better, right? So, like, you mentioned, obviously, we have in June 2020 high watermark for Guardsmen activated locally to support, you know, civilian authorities. Now, how does the Guard Bureau then and, like, the J35 role that you're in now um, work in conjunction with the bench, essentially these, like, pseudo independent you know uh militias right mm -hmm. national guards mm -hmm. of the various states being mobilized and activated and then so if you could talk a little bit about that and, and maybe hit in on like um how some of this support works across state lines yeah absolutely uh so the national guard bureau uh is is not a headquarters uh, and doesn't command anything uh, it, it, it is a bureau that is uh, tasked with coordinating um, the, uh, the, 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 the guidance and communication with the states uh, between, between the federal departments and agencies, uh, particularly the uh, of Department of Defense, um, and, and then uh, representing uh, and managing the resources provided by 
the Army and the Air Force uh, within their programs to the Army National Guard and Air National Guard. Uh, what, what, what has evolved, uh, particularly in relation to domestic operations, is that the National Guard Bureau has a role in, in communicating what the National Guard is doing to our federal agencies and partners and to uh, our other states uh, as well, to keep everyone uh, uh, abreast of, of what, what is happening and what, uh, so that uh, the entire enterprise can ensure that it's prepared uh, in, in case uh, there is a need to support um, a, a particular state or a particular or if some other federal agency uh, requests support from the Department okay. of Defense. So the National Guard Bureau uh, tracks uh, what is happening through our uh, communications and relationships with uh, each of the 54 states uh, and territories joint operations centers. We collect that information uh, and uh, we provide that to National Guard Bureau senior leaders as well as to our interdepartmental and interagency uh, uh, senior leaders so that they have an awareness. And what that does is that, uh, theoretically anyway, reduces the amount of uh, communication that might come from a uh, hundred other sources all back to that state, all asking them what's going on or to several states at the same time. Uh, if National Guard Bureau, uh, if we're doing our job um, collecting that information enough that we can represent um, all of those states in, in the communication with, uh, with hmm. the federal entities of, of what's happening, uh, whether a state needs assistance, whether a state doesn't need assistance and, and uh, is, is able to manage uh, the response efforts with their internal uh, capabilities and support. So, you know, that kind of brings me into, you know, we're kind of diving into like the role of the Joint Operations Center here and stuff, you know, when it comes to like a larger scale mobilization where you have, we have many states sending soldiers in, like what we saw um, during that, you know, kind of the January 6th response, we had, I mean, a ton of guardsmen that were mobilized in a very short period of time, um, you know, in the D.C. area. You know, what, you know, what was that experience like for you working up here and, uh, you know, how does the J35 work into that? Sure. So I, I uh, was not assigned here yet um, okay. when when uh, that response was happening, um, but uh, I've I've certainly participated and, and reviewed a lot of the the information and can talk a little bit about it. And my understanding was that is that that essentially over over the, the uh, extended months uh, after January sixth. Um, we, we totaled about 25,000 National Guard service members uh, deployed in, in support of, uh, of the District of Columbia. Uh, so that, and, and some of that uh, on a couple different occasions, uh, mustering s several thousand in just a matter of, of a few days uh, in in a kind in of, kind relatively of an feat. I mean. it, it was it was a lot of folks doing some some amazing work then um, to to support the District of Columbia and and the DC National Guard um, uh, maintaining a a uh, um, I believe almost 270 days of encampment duty, which is their equivalent to state active duty, um, uh, in in support of of civil unrest. Um, and 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 then uh, managing that 
entire task force uh, as well. So uh, there was it was a large, uh, complicated response, uh, larger than what we've done, and and then we had uh, civil unrest in in multiple states at, at the, uh, during the same time period. Uh, so that highlights one of the other thing, one of the ways in which National Guard Bureau gets involved um, is when a a state or territory or district um, has a, a need for National Guard forces that exceeds its internal capabilities, um, then you have a, a state to state assistance function, um, and the National Guard Bureau, when when needed, will assist in coordinating. Uh, that and and that example, uh, there was certainly uh, a, a lot of assistance in which uh, we would get involved in in the communication of what is what are the needs um, and who can fulfill those needs and uh, mm. and and uh, making sure depending on the type of duty status, uh, if it's not going to just be state active duties, uh, but a, a request for federal assistance. Uh, is is uh, being submitted and and then coordinated with the office of the Secretary of Defense. Then National Guard Bureau will will be involved in that uh, as well. And so um, that's that's one of the things that uh, uh, gets complicated and and that uh, part of the burden uh, that we uh, that a state may have that we try and assist with. So I mean, you you brought up a lot of really good points about. I mean, the guards working in all these different environments, whether it was like the, you know, encampment that occurred uh, up here in D.C. or, you know, these various different things supporting. But, you, you know, you've used this term and phrase supporting local authorities, supporting local authorities throughout throughout everything you're saying mm -hmm. here. You know, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, why is the guards ability to work with their local community is so important. We're, I mean, we're going to have another episode that's kind of focused on these relationships with local authorities specifically, but just kind of as an overview, can you kind of highlight, you know, maybe based on some of your experiences in the past, you know, what the importance is of maintaining local relationships, um, both during operations and even prior to? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because there are two Two different ways to look at it. The first is 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 the design by uh, by by uh, how the militia is designed in the Constitution and and even the uh, active armed forces. Uh, those relationships of of who we work for and 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 uh, what authorities they have uh, to employ us uh, are is is why the National Guard. Uh, is is essentially the the first military responder of choice at a at a at a state level, um, uh, and and why uh, in in the United States it is uh, while while there can certainly be a, a request or an, uh, for assistance or immediate response from uh, federal uh, federal military capabilities and and that happens uh, uh, plenty as well. Um, but uh, the the National Guard is the uh, the militia that works for the governor, and the governor is the is the person responsible for the overall uh, security and safety within a, a given yeah. uh, state or territory. But then the other part is is just how the National Guard is uh, is is then um, our 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 the nature of 
of our service and okay. uh, in, in that we are citizen soldiers and, and, and airmen. Um, uh, so we are more likely to have ties within the communities in which we serve or close to them. Um, and uh, as well as the fact that so many National Guard service members have uh, civilian occupations that may be related to, um, to emergency services or local government um, or, or just in the community. Um, and so we, uh, we become representatives for our own brand of, of what we can accomplish uh, when all of a sudden uh, your neighbor uh, knows one, that yeah. that that you you are um, uh, you know that that you are a a paramedic with the National Guard um, uh, and that your unit uh, has been called upon in in, in the past to uh, to respond to to uh, a crisis then uh, that just kind of reinforces um, uh, the the relationship and the brand of of the National Guard. Based on some of your experiences in the past, you know, we have, we, and we kind of hit on this already a little bit, but the readiness metrics of, you know, focused, you know, as it, like I'm a company commander right now. And so I'm focused on hitting these metal tasks. Like Certainly. next week we're doing squad live fire, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for annual training. So, um, you know, how do units maintain that flexibility to both be ready to meet that national security uh, mission and, be flexible and dynamic enough to be able to, when called upon, answer these like very different domestic operations, which you know it's really hard to plan for. It's it's certainly a challenge that uh, th that we leaders have have worked to figure out the right balance for a long time, and there there is no perfect answer. But uh, there are a couple of different strategies uh, that that can be employed to. Uh, to, to, to make decisions on how, how to best get after that. So one of them is, is at the state leadership level uh, in coordination with guidance from the National Guard Bureau on uh, which units are most likely to, to be needed to support a particular response in a state. And those units uh, should, should you know, make sure that, uh, that they dedicate a little bit more training time to uh, any particular tasks that that uh, may, uh, in in partnering, in pairing their federal mission uh, set with what might be needed for a state mission set. Uh, so, for example, our military police units are uh, have have a federal mission that ties uh, in. Uh, with uh, potential for supporting uh, civil unrest or or uh, in a domestic situation, and so a lot of times uh, our states will try and identify those units uh, that have a a similar uh, mission set uh, as as a, a National Guard response force element or. Uh, some other type of response force. Uh, another example would be with our, uh, with a, a chemical unit, perhaps on the Ar in the Army National Guard, um, that might also be part of the uh, Seaburn Chemical Biological Radionuclear okay. uh, uh, Enterprise uh, Response Force, or something like that. Again, we've we've paired a unit uh, with uh, a, their federal mission with a domestic capability 
and then we can make sure that, that the training uh, has has a benefit to to both uh, potential things. But that doesn't always apply to to every uh, to every unit. And so uh, then uh, what what needs to happen is is following that conversation that that commander's dialogue with your higher headquarters is to determine okay just uh, how much. Uh, how, what, what is a likely mission for us in our state's uh, uh, all-hazards response plan, and, and uh, then what training activities within my mission essential task list uh, can I look at uh, and say, hey, those types of, of subordinate collective or individual tasks also would benefit uh, and, and, and in a, a domestic response situation for whatever my type of unit uh, might be called to ask to do. And then it'd be finding uh, the right way within uh, your, your training cycle as well uh, of, of integrating that. And, and certainly those decisions, if, if you're expecting to be deployed or going to a large uh, training exercise, you're going to have to focus more of your, your time on, on the mission set you've been given there. So you know, when it comes to developing some of those relationships, you know, um, if I know, like, as an infantry company, we've, you know, been called out to support, you know, a number of different things, right? Like, I had soldiers come up during January 6th. We had uh, domestic unrest in, like, Omaha that we've helped support, some flooding operations. Like, you know, what are, you know, what's your advice to, you know, company commanders out there, you know, unit leaders at all, kind of, you know, echelons at the unit level and be like, you know, how should you be engaging with local authorities to kind of build some of those ongoing relationships? And, um, you know, what is your advice in doing so? One of the great things about the National Guard also, as we were talking earlier about how the National Guard uh, fits in its role in, in uh, supporting uh, civil authorities is, is our, uh, our distribution in the communities uh, allows for a presence that builds relationships, uh, not just at the individual level with, with friends and neighbors and colleagues, but at the professional level between our, uh, our, our uh, leaders at the unit level and, and uh, at the state level with the civilian leaders and, and other agency leaders. Uh, so for example, um, it, it, as a battalion commander, uh, I would make sh sure that I knew where my the county emergency management agency was uh, for the the units in which uh, I had armories, hmm. and uh, and and uh, maybe even who the county emergency manager was, uh, and and find a time to stop by and just say, hey, uh, you know, just so you might so so you uh, introduce myself. Um, one of the things that uh, in the as we've talked with a lot of different um, uh, emergency planners, one of the cliches is you never want to be trading business cards at the time of an emergency. Mm -hmm. um, so any chance you have to uh, at least uh, make introductions, 
and understand different agencies and capabilities that may be relative to your particular state uh, or your particularly, uh, particular geographic region. Uh, those are important to, to take advantage of and to, and uh, again, understand what your unit's potential role might be in your state's plan, uh, whether or not you've been uh, identified as a, a as a particular response yeah. element uh, for a for uh, a, a certain area or a certain task force uh, or uh, a certain function uh, that 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 you might be uh, needed in, uh, if if the a particular uh, emergency were to happen. And sir, you know, we kind of hit on like a bunch of these units that don't necessarily have a direct role, but you did mention something that I kind of wanted to hope to highlight, and that is the kind of the seaburn response that the guard has embedded in it, um, which is like, I guess, I mean, I don't know how I would define that, but it's like a domestic, like, security mission, essentially. Um, I don't, yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on those things, but could you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what the guard's footprint looks like that? The National Guard has got, uh, in, within the Seaburn Enterprise uh, that, that we mentioned, a, a several different task force, 10, 10 different uh, Homeland Response Force elements uh, throughout the United States. And they are aligned with a mission um, that is associated with U.S. NORTHCOM for uh, and, and, and federal mission requirements for a regional response to a, a Seaburn uh, event. And so it's, it's uh, a little bit security, but uh, uh, there's, uh, there are medical capabilities, there are decontamination wow. capabilities, there are detection capabilities. Um, uh, and uh, so, so they are an identified um, and, and trained, and we actually uh, force, and we, and we do have readiness metrics that, that they report, um, just like other elements report their normal federal mission readiness standards. Well, it's like, it's just interesting because we, you know, we've kind of come full circle now as we're kind of closing it out a little bit from, hey, you know, you're a brigade commander working with um, the Ukrainian military. We've talked about all these domestic operations and then like, oh yes, by the way, you know, your National Guard unit that you see helping with floods and stuff out there, there's also elements of the National Guard that are postured for seaburn instances, you know, in your local community. And, and and that kind of brought me to, you know, I was doing an interview a couple months ago and the individual that was talking about it said like, hey, you know, I see uh, the National Guard recently being like America's Band-Aid to like all sorts of different things. And you kind of alluded that a little bit when you were talking about readiness metrics um, and how as, you know, over the past 25 years, the Guard has become a much more dynamic organization and kind of like a unit of choice for a lot of the civilian authorities to source, you know, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on that on an ongoing basis related to, you know, America, you know, or the National Guard being that, you know, band-aid to solve problems that the, that the state or federal government has? Certainly our civilian leaders uh, have tough decisions to, to make when they need to activate the National Guard and that those don't come without a cost. Um, they uh, both both financially and uh, at the cost of of the sacrifice that our uh, citizen service members yeah. 
uh, in, in, uh, and, and their families and their employers uh, are all making. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a community effort um, and uh, to, to support that and to respond in an emergency. And, and yes, the goal is that that response uh, takes place uh, in, until such time as uh, the normal capabilities of the state or territory can, can then assume control uh, of the response and recovery uh, on the way back to, uh, to as, as what the new normal will look like for whatever uh, post-recovery uh, effort is. Well, and, and I guess that brings me to my kind of my last question, sir, which is just like, you know, do you have any, you know, we've covered an overview of domestic operations a little bit, which kind of was the purpose of this episode. Like, let's get a general overview, talk about some of the different dynamic pieces of this, and then we're going to do a deep dive into these different sections um, to include, you know, these interagency relationships, you know, training specifically, and then, you know, talking to a unit that went through a big operation and then they like what their experience was and lessons learned. So, you know, what piece of advice do you have from your seat here, um, especially kind of seeing domestic operations across the United States that you would give out to um, to leaders out there um, on, you know, anything related to domestic operations? Again, uh, first is to understand, apply the things that you've learned that the military has taught you uh, and, and apply those uh, in in the situation that you might find yourself in. So understand your environment, understand uh, what the threat is, understand what your capabilities of your organization are, uh, and what your um, uh, what your friendly forces uh, capabilities are. Whether there are other units that you might uh, respond with or. Uh, other civilian uh, capability, first responders or, or capabilities, uh, understand how to, uh, to conduct a mission analysis and, and go about uh, identifying a problem and solving a problem while communicating with folks uh, directly, uh, making sure that you're focused on things like uh, the, the, the mission and the intent of whoever's giving you the mission and how that focuses down to task and purpose in, in what guidance you're going to give your subordinate elements. So, uh, I, and at the lowest level uh, in, in the Army, you, you take those troop leading procedures that, that you learn as a, a very junior leader and you apply those uh, to, to the situation you're going to find yourself in. Um, and uh, th that is uh, one of the ways in which you will achieve success in, in the mission uh, e even when it, it's, it's not a mission that you are particularly trained for. Uh, and then what you also will find is that your ability to do those things and to bring your, your planning, uh, organizational skills, and, and just general leadership skills, uh, both at an individual level and for whatever collective unit uh, you may be part of, uh, when, when you're responding and working with uh, civilian partners and other agencies, you'll find that they, uh, that they don't have those kinds of, of skills in, in some ways um, uh, and that they will value your ability to plan and lead uh, and, and assist in, in responding to uh, our civil authorities. Well, yeah, well, thank you, sir, um, for coming in and sharing some of your experiences. Um, we're looking forward to uh, 
continuing this series where we kind of cover an overview of domestic operations. So appreciate it. Absolutely, glad to be here. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed today, please visit our social media pages in the links below. Tune in to Leaders Recon over the next few weeks as we bring in today's leaders and pioneers to discuss their experiences, share their wisdom, and help you grow as a leader. If you like this episode of Leaders Recon, please don't forget to subscribe below and leave us a five-star review. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.